as we as we go through this time together, <laughs> we're gonna hold, we're gonna clench our fists and try not to sing out loud try. to each other as we do it. If it's not clear, we both love this musical. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. And we're back with a very exciting first episode of four episodes. This is the first week of musical month. We are thrilled. We're doing four musicals right in a row. This is the first time that we have come to musicals, and that's not to say we won't do musicals again in the future, but so far our time is focused on non-musical plays of the drama and comedy variety, and now we are jumping into including what it would be like to talk about musicals, which have a non-textual element to them. You can yeah. read a musical script and have almost no idea what it's like as a mu- as a play, as a piece of theater at all, without <laughs> hearing the music. So this is yep. a new journey for us. We're stepping into it. We thought that we'd go big or go home. First episode, <laughs> right off the bat, we're jumping in the famous, the wildly popular. The, the if if you don't know any other script in the world right now, you probably know something about. Hamilton. Yes. Hamilton, the American musical. <laughs> it's um, we're very excited to talk about this. This is uh, uh, a script that we both have enjoyed quite a bit. Um, actually, this is kind of reminiscent of me going to uh, you and your wife's wedding because right, I listened yeah, to it because we all we got then. married. My wife and I got married right about the time that the Hamilton soundtrack first dropped. And since yeah. we all lived in the Midwest at the time, we had no. I mean, we weren't seeing Hamilton. We just right. heard some things from people in New York about this amazing musical that was like hundreds and hundreds of dollars a ticket every night. It was sold out, <laughs> and I had been watching for Hamilton to come out because I had seen some trailers for it and some theater talk about it um, the previous summer and I was excited for it finally the soundtrack dropped and I listened through it more than 10 or 12 times right away and then at my wedding that winter (laughs) um, all the guys as we were getting ready listened to Hamilton which was the first time for a lot of them which was fun yeah, it's crazy fun and gr- a great musical to road trip to to try to sing along to. So I'm excited to get to talk about it a little bit. Yeah, it's I mean, you know, there is nothing like Hamilton in the world right now. Yeah, every mm-hmm. you know, you feel like every generation has a musical, which is defining uh, you, th- you think of like Fiddler on the Roof, which we're doing as part of our musical month, how defining that musical was for a generation of theater goers, a music man, Oklahoma. And this and Hamilton certainly is that for us, but it seems to be that and so much more. Yeah, because it's 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 genre shattering as well. Um, uh, we'll kind of talk about this in a minute, but Lin Manuel has written hip hop musicals before. He wrote In the Heights to much acclaim uh, right before this musical, and uh, and he's really good at it. But this like mashed up that those genres of a, of a kind of a new genre coming up, which is a musical based entirely in in hip hop. And then also combined it with 
on a topic that maybe some a lesser person would have seen as pretty dry, which is, you know, the the history of Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, the life and times of Alexander Hamilton. This is yeah. a guy who, for the longest time, we've been talking about getting rid of on the ten dollar bill because right. nobody knew who he was. <laughs> yep. Just the most boring character in all of American history has become potentially the most famous founding father outside of George Washington, George Washington. at least right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just, it, you know, it blows us all away. That, hey, that, yeah, very fun. We said um, we'd try to not sing. We, we, we didn't we're going to try though. not to sing. <laughs> Jackson and I, uh, we, we both love musicals. Our friend group has all loved musicals. Jackson and I have sung musicals together so often that yep. as we as we go through this time together, <laughs> we're going to hold, <laughs> we're going to clench our fists and try not to sing we're out loud try. to each other as we do it. <laughs> if it's not clear, we both love this musical. If yes. you're somebody listening that, you know, is, is one one of probably the few people in our society who's decided they don't like Hamilton for one reason or another. <laughs> this is probably not going to be the best use of your time. Yeah, you'll be frustrated <laughs> by the end of this. We're, we're going we're gonna to spend the next, you know, however long we talk. We usually try to keep it under an hour. We're going to spend that time pretty much talking about all the things we love about this musical. <laughs> yeah. So just, you just need to know that going in. That's where that's right. where the conversation is headed. This is our jump off point. <laughs> we, we, start, we try to start every episode talking a little bit about the context. The story of this musical is pretty well known, but I'll drop just a little bit of it here, you know, as we go. The musical started, it's, it's, you know, book, score, lyrics by Lin-Manuel Miranda. And it started as a sort of a concept mixtape. It was a few songs that he had written uh, sort of from the perspective about the life of some of the founding fathers. He famously performed one of them for the Obamas at a reception. And he was just imagining sort of a mixtape of interesting songs about and by the founding fathers in the rap, R&B, hip-hop genres. And somewhere along the line, he and his creative team decided, you know what, this should be a full-blown musical. So he spends years writing it, famously said one of the songs took him two years to write. And it opened off-Broadway at the Public Theater before going on to Broadway and selling out and becoming, you know, one of the biggest phenomena in theater history, potentially. And you can you can read the book that kind of inspired him. It's uh, Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow, I think is what Who, I have written Yeah, down. and the author was a consultant for the script. So it wasn't yeah. just that he read the book and then wrote the script. He, he brought in that historian to work with mm-hmm. him on the script. And we may talk a little bit about some of that because... Lin-Manuel made some interesting choices about his historical accuracy in some places versus not. Yeah. And, you know, where do you where do you extend the imagination as a playwright and and assume things and 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 that tension? Um, We also like to do a synopsis right at the beginning. Uh, My job is fairly easy on this one because it's basically American history. Um, So this this follows the life of Alexander Hamilton pretty much from the time that he is a very small boy and he uh, immigrates to New York. And uh, and his life, as it progressed from there, as he is coming up, he goes to school. He meets Aaron Burr, who is a huge character in this. His foil. His, yes. Uh, you know, his Macduff. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, and then the, then the revolution happens. And New York is a, a huge pivotal moment early on in the revolution. And then, obviously, when the war is won, New York is a huge linchpin as well because it was uh, Britain's base of operations as they as they attempted to subdue the revolution. So that all happens in Act 1, and then you get Act 2, which is uh, 
you know, America being built, yeah, basically. It's, it's Hamilton's political life. The, you know, the yeah. first act is his young life and his military life. And then the second act is his political life culminating Slash in his death. family life as well. Yeah, and family. There, like, there's always, there's that subtextual, not subtextual, um, subplot level that is his relationship with his, his wife and her sister and his son, mm-hmm. which, you know, it... I call it a subplot. I probably would stand by that, but it, it's a fairly major part of some of the musical. Yeah, yeah, a pretty it has a lot of weight, but maybe not the the direct tack of it. But yeah, that's that's basically we meet a lot of characters through there, and we'll talk about a lot of them. But we meet George Washington. We meet, as I said, Aaron Burr. We meet the Schuyler sisters. We meet Lafayette and Hercules Mulligan and John Lawrence. All these are characters that show up, you know, in like middle school history, you know, Johnny Tremaine and stuff like that. We know these characters. And the thing to kind of, I mean, that this is a, this is an obvious thing, I'm sure to many of you who know the musical well, but the kind of, uh, the, 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 the large difference in this is that this play is cast completely with, uh, actors of, mm, minorities uh, and they're um, non-white actors there are some white actors that would be in the ensemble and and uh, uh importantly a white actor plays king george yes but beyond that other than the ensemble and king george the main characters of the musical are all non-white actors so this is mm-hmm. you know this is american history this is george washington thomas jefferson john madison john adams played by non-white actors and that's an important part of the creation and idea idea of the musical. Mm-hmm. And that's that's again one of this the the lines or or genres that this play pushes on with it is it, it kind of takes it out anachronistic maybe would be a way to describe it and like and and puts on a different theme on it in that way as well. I mean, where do we dive off right well, at the I beginning think we should, here? I think we should before we dive in, we should hedge a little bit and say the the musical is huge. The yep. the theatrical imagination and lyrical imagination and storytelling are huge. We we just simply will not be able to talk about everything. <laughs> we never can, but probably especially in this case, it's just we we're only going to be able to talk about so much before we run out of time. So just be aware we may not talk about exactly what you wanted us to talk about, and we'd love yep. to hear back from you. Um, tell us if there's things you, we big glaring things you think we really should have talked about. If someday potentially maybe we came back to this script, are there other things that you really think we should capitalize on and focus on? I don't think either of us have seen it staged. Is that right, Jackson? Not not beyond like the PBS special that ran a couple scenes. Yeah, so I, it, I've seen so. a couple scenes as well, and that that's all. So we're not probably going to talk about the staging much. Uh, neither of us studied, you know, neither of us has degrees in music. So we, while we will talk about the music, we're probably not going to talk about it in the same way we talk about the theatricality, the storytelling, and the characters, which is what Jackson and I study and love and spend a lot of our time on. So that's probably where our directionally will head. We're not going to give you a history of hip hop and R&B and rap and talk about the ways in which that genre has changed and morphed <laughs> and usually that's just not our area of expertise. So we're talking yeah. about the story, the writing, the characters, things like that. So just be aware that's what our hour, less than an hour is going to be spent on now. Let's take, yes, the, let's take the plunge. Yeah. Where do we start, Jackson? Oh man! Well, kind of right away, I wanted to start with you know, kind of these these characters, the 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 boiling pot of these characters. There's the five, four, four or five um, friends. I mean, let me count real yeah, quick. Three friends, Alexander Hamilton, Hamilton, and Burr. Yes, kind of make up a a, a group of five that yep. occupy a lot of the first act. And they're kind of this like 
it's this mesh of young, angry, um, pretty much boys who um, nevertheless have very strong beliefs and uh, and rocks that they stand on that they believe should be enacted or, or views in the world that should be enacted. Let's maybe just spend a little time introducing them and maybe that'll kind of bring us along the way. Sure. So obviously the first character we meet, if you've not heard the musical, the opening song is this riotous, enthralling introduction to Alexander Hamilton himself. We get yep. some of his backstory. We learn about, you know, his his father, a Scotsman, his mother, a woman in the Caribbean, and how he, his father left them there. His mother gets sick and dies. Eventually, he writes, and through his writing, gains some popularity in the islands, enough that people help to get him money to go to school. So he takes a boat to New York where he starts school, and he runs into some trouble at school, which leads him to seek out Aaron Burr. Yeah, and Aaron Burr is this uh, also an orphan who uh, went to school there, and and the the reason he seeks out Aaron Burr is because he wants to graduate early and and join the revolution. He wants to try to get through it quicker than everyone else, and he knows that Aaron Burr did it as well. Because for and this is a crucial point for the character of Alexander Hamilton, especially in the first act, he sees the war as a way to improve his social standing. It's yeah. his shot at at becoming more than just an impoverished immigrant from the Caribbean. That through the war, he might be able to gain a command. He might be able to be a hero. He might be able to end the war with a better position than he started it with. Yeah, which is pretty much true. Uh, that is what happens. Like, yeah, this is this. That's what happened, and that's. I mean, that's that's true of of wartime. That's the time of kind of opportunist when people can can come up from nothing and. Uh, and so he, yeah, so he comes up to Aaron Burr trying to get this, <laughs> get this way into the revolution fast enough by finishing his education quickly and winds up meeting these three other friends who kind of come into the bar, basically, that Aaron Burr is uh, buying him a drink in to yeah, try to tell he, him to slow he down. He says hello to Aaron Burr and Burr's advice to him, and already we've learned that Hamilton is this sort of mouthy, says whatever he wants, yeah. pretty, pretty quick, pretty smart but not doesn't have a ton of self-control mm-hmm. and and he meets Burr whose advice right away is the you know the famous Hamilton quote talk less smile more <laughs> as yep. in you need to keep your mouth shut a little bit don't be spouting all these crazy beliefs that you have you're going to get yourself killed mm-hmm. the british still rule you need to just hold back control yourself and that's Aaron Burr's advice as they enter this bar where they meet <laughs> three of the most talkative <laughs> riotous unself-controlled yep. people in the entire musical <laughs> yep and those three are Lafayette, who is a is a big character in American history. He's a a French immigrant who came over and uh, is is a huge part of the revolution. There's Hercules Mulligan and then John Lawrence. And these are all, you know, uh, Hercules Mulligan joined the Sons of Liberty and went, you know, undercover in in New York during the occupation. So these this this like meeting point this this hot pot of of ideas boiling over. Hamilton walks into. And he just starts talking and won't stop. He not not heeding Aaron Burr's advice at all. And the, uh, and the, the, <laughs> the sort of the structure of the scene is that Lin-Manuel has written these three characters, famous American characters, meeting together in a bar and having like a rap circle. 
They're all rapping back and forth, exchanging ideas, history. It's a lot of character introduction to sort of, you know, telling them who, telling us who they are, what they value, what their goals are, things like that in this rap circle. And Hamilton joins and is immediately the best of the, of the four of them. Right. In in lyrical prowess and energy and ideas. And he, he, the, the, the deciding factor for these other three is we got to get Hamilton in front of a crowd. He's got to be talking right. to other people. He's inspiring. He's a genius. He's the guy that can get the revolution really rolling. Now, this scene never happened, right? As, <laughs> as is true of a lot of the musical, yeah. it, there's some historical accuracy. There's also some liberty. It It's true that Hamilton was friends with all these people in some way or another. It is not true that he ever met all three of them at the same time. It's not really, as far as we know, true that the four of them were other really friends like that. Sure. So this is a liberty taken uh, by the playwright, uh, you know, over what I imagine is probably some opposition from the historian. What's <laughs> the value of creating this group of friends? Why do that despite the fact that it's historically inaccurate? Hmm, that's a great that's a great point. I think, I mean, it instantly it's something we can identify with the camaraderie of shared ideas. You know, so often we we identify with those within the context of like you know getting having drinks together and coming up with crazy ideas. Like that's a scene that all of us have a story from our lives from <laughs> whether or not it came to as as uh, fruitful an end as the American Revolution did. That's another story. But these four characters certainly traded ideas all during the revolution. And instead of the kind of long, laborious writing of letters eventually connecting, uh, he condensed that into one scene where we get to experience it all at once and uh, eventually culminate with Alexander Hamilton coming out with this, you know, kind of prowess, this uh, and greater understanding of He's the only one amongst them. They all have grand ideas, and we get to see each of them um, say what their grand ideas are. We, as the audience, are introduced to these characters very quickly and in a very succinct way, yet because of the nature of hip-hop, quite uh, expounding, uh, quite uh, a lot of expounding on the subjects because you can say so much words, so many words in that form. But he's the only one that has a structural government as his like focus, um, he's talking about our financial situation right away from the beginning, and he's he's trying to solidify the the credit of the nation right away from that initial scene, and so you get to see kind of the contrast between people. All these people, because of the structure of it, they're in one room. They have grandiose dreams and kind of almost intangible dreams, um, in some ways. Actually, actually, that's really interesting because I don't know that maybe Hercules Mulligan dream. Hercules Mulligan's dream comes true by the end of the play, but I don't think Lawrence does. Right, and and, and so Lawrence, his his rapping section is about the rights of black citizens, or they are yeah. citizens actually at that point, they're slaves. About black slaves and how you know we're creating this country about freedom in theory, but we still have all these slaves. So his imagining is, well, if we're going to be a country that's really free, we have to free these other people as well. Mm-hmm. And then Lafayette's dream is that France is freed. Right. And he, France uh, is... Lafayette being a French French citizen, he goes back to France later in the musical yeah. to help fight the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. And technically, they're free, but it's not um, at the end of that struggle for freedom. Yeah, and they're run by a monarchy still at that <laughs> yeah. point, which, which Lafayette raps about, too. He dreams yeah. of life without a monarchy. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. So yeah, that's. I mean, maybe the maybe uh, you get to see how structured Hamilton's um, dream is in comparison to others by yeah, that format. You definitely as well. get some comparison. One real benefit of the scene is it it's a way to show rather than telling how much smarter, how much more articulate, how much more clever Hamilton is than a lot of the other people he knew at the time. It's a way to establish his his. Uh, his his genius in yep. comparison to other people. I think another thing that it does is, you know, Hamilton's such a he's such a he's such a character in conflict. He's constantly arguing with people, constantly telling off people, constantly his scenes are tense as he's battling something. And so to right away create a group of friends with whom he enjoys time with whom he shares some values with whom he can have fun and sing drinking songs it's a real great thing for the rest of the musical for him to have a group of people that he's not constantly fighting with because yeah. a lot of the other characters in the play he's just constantly arguing with <laughs> yeah he even says that in a line he says you know um I, I often I've never had a group of friends before. I promise I'll make you proud. Like don't please don't get rid of me. Right. And <laughs> he needs that as a person in history and as uh, as a character in this play. He needs a group of people with whom he can be friendly because yeah. that group is so few and far between for him <laughs> yeah. and the rest of the scenes. Yep. And he just he lays into so many people in this play. There's there's a scene not long after this where the group is kind of formed and they're going around talking about the revolution um, against people in the area who are trying to stay with the with the with Britain and stay a part of the monarchy and or a part of the empire and. It's a scene where he just smashes a farmer like this. Right? This, yeah, it's a, somebody yeah. making a speech about how they should stay with Britain. They should stay as a British colony. And Hamilton debates him through rap. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and what what happens is Burr is also there. And Burr is saying, stop arguing. You're going to get us all killed. This yeah. is stupid. What a waste of time. Don't argue with him. So Hamilton's got one, a debate going on with somebody about content, a debate going on with Burr about form. So yep. two major arguments. And so what the group of friends allows him to do there is have a fan base too. Have <laughs> yeah. people who are actually supporting him and encouraging him people who he can teach and who he can um you know have camaraderie with so that scene is a great example of of how important those three are and they come up individually later on too because at least in this story i understand that that's not exactly how it worked historically but at least in this story lafayette is a large part of the reason why hamilton is brought back to get some command is that he has somebody lobbying for him on his behalf lawrence is uh somebody who stands with him in a duel and who is willing to risk his life for the ideals hamilton puts forward later on so it it provides Hamilton with people he can really rely on who he doesn't have to constantly negate. Yeah, so so into this group then comes this enormous authority figure, right? Like these these characters are going around pressing on pressing on different people throughout the countryside basically and throughout New York and then the general comes, right? We get George Washington coming in with the army to try to keep New York safe from the fleet of Britain that is is coming into the bay, Chesapeake Bay. No, not Chesapeake Bay. One of the bays. There's a bay. And we learn <laughs> that bay. Uh, Britain has got ships <laughs> staged there to put down the rebellion. Yeah. 
So yeah, this there's there's this big number. Here comes the general is is this big number where George Washington comes in and he's looking for a right-hand man. He's looking for someone who can, you know, do do some of the things that he can't yeah, necessarily sort of be an administrator for him. You know, he's he's worried about the war aspect of it, leading these men, planning battles, maintaining morale, and he needs somebody who can worry about supplies, who can write letters, who can you know, Hamilton refers to it as being his secretary. In a, right. In a, in a, with a negative connotation, as if, yeah, I'm George Washington's secretary now. Right, right. Which is not necessarily what he was shooting for, yeah? No, He's he like, he wants to be a commander. He wants mm-hmm. to be fighting for his country. You know, one of the refrains of this first half is that Hamilton is young, scrappy, and hungry, just like his country. He wants to fight. He wants to earn his reputation and, and a, a group of people who are loyal to him and a position after the war. And now he's ended up, quote unquote, he says, manning George's journal. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, and again, like he's he's kind of set within the question of – you know, do I just keep scrapping away? Like he's he's brought to Washington's attention because he and his friends steal cannons from the British partway through the ba- battle, and, and because so, several other smaller commanders in the in the in the Revolution also have tried to hire Hamilton to do the same thing because right. he's he's got a great skill with the quill. Um, <laughs> yes. and to quote, he's he's really good. He's articulate. He's a good speaker and a good writer. Mm-hmm. And so he's brought to Washington's attention and he brings him in and he almost turns him down kind of like he, he, he takes some talking to get him in, get him convinced. But ultimately, um, the, the call of, of this individual with such gravitas overweighs the maybe less, um, less desire that he has for for such a, a paperwork sort of job. Yeah. You get the sense that Hamilton's hoping this will turn into something greater. We, you know, throughout the course of the war, which continues on, we learn that Hamilton is pretty consistently asking for a command to be relieved of his secretarial duties and put in the field in command of some men. So, you know, you wonder perhaps, did he only really take the job as a way to get George Washington's ear? Did he take it for the publicity that he's now publicly known as George Washington's right-hand man? Who knows? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, he's kind of this, um, I think I read somewhere in in one of the, 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 the script of Hamilton, if you decide to get the script, it's a beautiful script, and it also has a lot of writings by Lin-Manuel Miranda and other people involved in it. And they were talking about how uh, Hamilton in general was this guy who thought he would try to enact his ideas and then die doing them, basically. Yeah, he, like he, he wasn't, plans he, to be a martyr. That's said several yeah. times. In fact, one of the things George Washington tries to teach him early on is that dying is easy. You imagine being mm-hmm. a martyr will turn you into this hero because it was this hard choice. Dying is easy. It's a war. You can die. Right. Living, Living and being a hero is the harder thing. So he is kind of running full bore. And then, then what is it that kind of gets him to stop and take a second and and maybe wonder if there's more more after dying. Well, it's that this could subplot be worth his time. again. And again, I want to say that I, probably some of you listening are balking at me calling it a subplot, but because it's an important part of the musical. But I yep. imagine that Hamilton's career is sort of the arc of the plot, and there are things pulling at him around that. You might disagree with mm, me, but that's how I imagine the spine of the play. Yeah. We can talk about that later. But allow me to call it a subplot for now, which is that Hamilton has been married. He uh, he married a woman named Eliza, um, the Schuyler sisters. Now she's Eliza Hamilton, but Eliza Schuyler, and she she marries Hamilton. There's a great scene. We got to talk about it, but we'll skip it for now. And now they are married, and Eliza is pregnant. 
And Hamilton, through a through disobeying George Washington and engaging in a duel with someone he wasn't supposed to, Hamilton is sent home. And when he gets home, he learns that Eliza is pregnant. And this causes him to reevaluate his choice to want to be a martyr, to be willing, you know, be willing and eager to die for his country. And Mm -hmm. we learn that Eliza actually sent George Washington a letter which says, hey, I'm pregnant. Please don't get my husband killed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And that is why George Washington sent him home, at least in the story of this script. Historically, who knows? But at least in the story of the script, George Washington sent Hamilton home because he's like, you need to f- learn this. You, yeah. Hey, yeah. you should probably go talk to your wife before you're so <laughs> eager to die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, what I mean, and what a what a tactic to get someone to care more, right? Like the whole time he's like just trying to keep him focused on his job and keep him writing, keep him focused on what he has to do. But it's when he won't let it drop, he's like, okay, I need you to live through this. Because we have governing to do later. <laughs> Go home, figure out a reason to yeah, live. Yeah, in the because... scene where George Washington sends him home, you know, the trio of lines is like, I need you alive. Your wife needs you alive. We yeah. need you alive. So he's he's subtly implying, hey, 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 you need to stay alive. You got a right. son. Oh, fine. Go home and reevaluate a little bit before you're yep. ready to come back. Yeah. <laughs> and then Hamilton is brought back. We talked about that earlier by the uh, encouragement of Lafayette, who says, look, we got one final battle here. I need somebody who's as brilliant as I am in the field who speaks French, which is important. So you mm-hmm. need to bring Hamilton back. George Washington does. In the script, he goes to Hamilton's house, I think, or maybe it's an exchange of letters. Even without seeing the staging, I'm not totally sure. But let's imagine yeah. that he goes to his house and he introduces one of the main Major themes of the script. He says, look, you're going to be given a command now. So what's the quote, Jackson? History has its eyes on you. History has its eyes on you. He says, look, you're going to be in a mm-hmm. position of authority now. Now people are watching. And mm-hmm. that is one of the refrains that echoes through the whole rest of the play is this idea that history is watching you. And, you know, there's some dramatic irony, I guess, in that because we are now in the year 2018 watching yeah. a play about these people in their <laughs> historical decisions. So, of course, just by virtue of seeing George Washington, uh, some actor playing George Washington saying that phrase, that phrase is proven true. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. It's kind of a weird, you know, odd way to experience self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, and then the secondary line uh, that he says in that in that George Washington has so many great lines in this, and eventually we what should just kind of trade favorite yeah. lines um, <laughs> from this play. But the other one in there is "Who lives, who dies." You have no control who lives, who dies, or who tells your story, and that's the other huge theme throughout this. Is Hamilton is so focused on legacy, and, and, and on, we'll get to and that on writing his own legacy, really, right? Like, about creating it for himself. He has the power to decide how people are going to see him. And George Washington mm-hmm. says, actually, you don't. You really don't. Yeah. And and we see we see that struggle continue throughout the play as we move into the second half. Well, let's. Um, I want to talk about the act break here, Jackson, because it's one of the things structurally about the script that I find interesting, questionable, maybe not wrong, but odd. 
So we've, mm-hmm. we've talked about how the first act is largely the Revolutionary War and the second act is largely p- Hamilton's political life. So given those two things, you would expect the act break to fall at the end of the Revolutionary War. Right. There's a huge celebration. They win the Battle of Yorktown, a huge dancing number. And we learn that Mulligan has been a spy and has saved the day. And Lafayette and Hamilton succeed in their battles. And they send the British home singing. Actually, interestingly, one of the notes you learn in the book is that the the drinking song the British are singing, The World Turned Upside Down, that's Mm -hmm. true. That really? they actually were yeah. singing. It was it was just a well-known drinking song at the time, but the lyrics really were the world turned upside or is about that idea wow. that the world yeah. is turned upside down. So they send the British home. They've won. And you think, end of act one, they win. <laughs> Curtain. <Right. laughs> but that is not the That's... end of act one. What do you make of that, Jackson? Why not end act one there? Yeah. Why not well, send the... the audience into intermission with the winning of the Revolutionary War? Right. It's certainly, you know, the the way Wicked would do it. That is right. That's so true. (laughs) Yeah. No offense to the Wicked lovers out there. No, not at all, because Defying Gravity is awesome. Um, (laughs) I think think it has to do with what the first number of Act 2 actually is. Because I agree that the the kind of three songs that happen after the the revolutionary war is over is like you know we started working together in new york <laughs> like aaron and uh, aaron burr and hamilton start working together in new york angelica um is is riding back and forth with with hamilton and um you you kind of wonder what's going on there's also the the beautiful uh song that both aaron burr and hamilton sing together about their children um and and again, you're you're kind of left with this this weird feeling of I thought we were done, but I think the inciting incident of the second act is Jefferson comes home, and I think that's more what we focus on because Jefferson is a major player against Hamilton, and we need that like full stop. Yeah, afterwards. And, and so structurally, having the first song of the first act be about. Alexander Hamilton and this grand introduction to him and his ideas and the first song of the second act be this introduction to Thomas Jefferson in the same way. This grand introduction, the chorus is involved, a big musical Mm. number, a lot of explanation of his ideas and his character. That creates a nice balanced structure of one of the people who is going to be Alexander's main antagonist. And even... Besides the overarching plot of the Alexander Burr conflict, the main conflict of the second act is Alexander Jefferson, is their battle. So there's some structural symmetry there, which is really nice and allows us – and we immediately recognize by starting act two with this introduction to Jefferson who the main character of act two is going to be. This is now – this is an act about Jefferson and Jefferson's relationship to Hamilton, which plays out. The other thing which I think – works for not ending act one with the end of the revolutionary war is that the the songs that come after set up that what is going to be the conflict of act two if if the playwright had decided to end act one with the end of the revolutionary war war and begin act two with hamilton's political life you really would just have two separate plays 
with some mm-hmm. connecting themes. The stories would not have much of a tie other than, well, there's some of the same characters, not not really a lot of the same characters, honestly. It's a largely <laughs> different group of people yeah. and, yep. and a lot of different themes. So other than some connecting themes, the stories would be really separate. But by connecting the beginning of Hamilton's political life with the end of the Revolutionary War and then taking a break, the playwright is mm-hmm. saying, no, 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 the same story isn't over. And you're going to go take a break now, but I want you to be aware of what are the conflicts that are going to come. And so the song nonstop, that's really what it's about. Nonstop, I think, is genius. It Mm -hmm. is the one day more of Hamilton. It is a it is a it is a reminiscent. It's all the tunes that we've learned brought back in different ways, used in creative ways to set up to, to, to change their meaning. You know, the playwright says, here are the tunes that you've known so far, the songs, the bits of music and lyrics, and you've understood them to mean this so far in this first half of the story. And now that the story is evolving, the meaning of these lyrics and songs are evolving too. So he sets up what you're going to be ready for and what are some of the conflicts that he sets up in nonstop. Oh, yeah. Well, he sets up the whole conflict around uh, him forming the National Bank. Uh, of around Hamilton forming the National Bank, which is a huge conflict for probably the first, let's say the first half of the second act. Um, that is the main conflict between Jefferson, Madison, and Alexander Hamilton is uh, how are we going to form, is is Hamilton going to get his vision of the National Bank approved by Congre- Congress? Right, so they set up that conflict to come. Another conflict is the 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 prevalence of Alexander's political life over his family life. They mm-hmm. set up the conflict that Alexander does not seem to have a lot of time for his wife and son when he's got such grand things to accomplish in the in the in the country, creating a new nation. And so that's one yeah. of these places where Lin Manuel geniusly changes one of his lyrics, right? Because Earlier in the in Act One, the characters have sung "Look around, look around at how lucky we are to be alive right now." Yeah. As this, jo- you know, what a great time to live in. A nation is starting. People are fighting for what they believe in. New York is becoming the greatest city in the world. It's so exciting. And then Eliza, at the end of that act, Eliza says, "You know, you need to spend some time with us. We're important too." And Hamilton responds, "Look around, look around at how lucky we are to be alive right now." And it twists yeah. the meaning of that. Absolutely, it stabs yep. you with it. <laughs> yeah, yep. The same words used in different contexts is beautiful. the 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 other kind of big conflict it set up is is it reaffirms the Aaron Burr. And uh, Hamilton uh, rivalry. The, the the first the first bit of nonstop is them fighting each. Basically, Aaron Burr fighting Hamilton, kind of being an excuse my French, but kind of being an ass in court. <laughs> like, he's, yeah, he's, Hamilton he's just is just like, sort of a terrible. I mean, he's he's a good lawyer, but he's a jerk about it. Yeah, yeah. He's so and much he's like, smarter than everybody. So much mm-hmm. better than everybody. And Burr yep. is a very collected. Take my time. Wait for the mm-hmm. right moment. Don't make waves. Yep. And so and, they set then, up that that's going to keep going. Yep, absolutely. And and kind of the struggle around Burr getting left behind because of it starts here. I think Burr kind of manages to navigate the Revolutionary War pretty well. But around here, when he decides, when he says he won't do, won't write the Constitution uh, support letters or, you know, letters the to, uh, papers. thank you, the Federalist Papers, he won't, he won't participate in that. I think that's when Which is a, begins- is a historical change. We don't have any evidence 
that that Hamilton ever asked Burr to do that. Right. But in this yeah, story, it's... it's important that Hamilton asks Burr to participate in the making of a new country, and Burr refuses. Yeah. Which begins to he begins to kind of fall back of the of progress at that moment in in the play for a little while for for about two uh, at least a third of the way through the second act, Burr is kind of in the background. We don't know what's going on with him, <laughs> and uh, he keeps getting left out of things because he didn't keep pace in this in that instant. I feel like is a big turning point. Yeah, and then the final thing, nonstop. What it actually refers to is that Hamilton is working nonstop. He writes yeah. all the time. He's constantly working on other things. So it sets up, I mean, his dedication, but also the idea that his dedication, his tunnel vision might lead to disaster. It prepares yep. the audience for that. So that's what the playwright has set up for you going into intermission. Rather than ending with a celebration and then starting a new story, he ends the Revolutionary War and then says, here's what's coming. Mm-hmm. Get ready. Yep, buckle up. So then the second act hits, and we're not going to have time to kind of go through it as exhaustively as we had. So maybe, like, can we just, like, do, like, each mentioned favorite parts or something like that? Like, Mm -hmm. what what are, like, the best? The cabinet battles are amazing. (laughs) Absolutely. He has, the playwright has decided there there are two cabinet battles which are crucial, and what a boring thing to try to listen to is people in the cabinet just discussing different political and theoretical ideologies. But he turns them, the playwright turns them into rap battles, which are in lively and engaging and full of strong emotions and good mm. clapbacks and great lyricism. So the cabinet battles are so fun and they do such a great job setting up not only the the contrast between Jefferson and Hamilton's ideology, but also the surrounding context, what all of that plays out to mean. One of the things that it means is that Jefferson learns that Washington basically sides with Hamilton uh, almost all the time, if given the chance. And that becomes one of the things that Jefferson overcomes as the antagonist. Right. Yeah. The the must be nice to have Washington on your side is the big theme of that. Um, the relationship between Hamilton, Eliza, Angelica, and his son, oh, I'm missing Philip. the name here, Philip, um, it really comes to, I mean, it, it, it comes to a head in this second act. A lot of things happen, um, especially the, 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 the big events are Angelica comes over the sea uh, to go on summer retreat and with, with, uh, with Eliza and Hamilton or Alexander. And she comes. She comes home, and he can't leave. He can't. He he decides to stay home and work because he needs to get his this vote through Congress. He needs to, you know, shake hands with enough people to get it through, or else he'll lose his job. Is his impression. So he can't take any time off. So she leaves, and while she's gone, he winds up cheating on her in a, in a really uh, heart wrenching number that is uh, really really hard to listen to and really good. Um, there's 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 a bit of there's a little bit of like. A, word choice in there that uh, I want to bring up. He he says, how could I do this in the middle of the song? And the, apparently there was some struggle on the, on the, the writing team about versus how can, how can you do this how, versus how can I do this? And in right, that line- Because the gal that he's having an affair with, her husband discovers that his wife is having an affair with Alexander Hamilton and basically extorts him. He says, look, you're going to pay me money or I'm going to tell your wife. And so Alexander Mm -hmm. does pay him money and he goes to confront the gal that he's cheating on his wife with. And 
as Jackson was saying, one of the conflicts was wh- about the lyrics was whether Alexander should say, how could you do this to the wo- woman as if how could you put me in this position of being extorted versus how could I do this? Yeah, which is a really self-aware thing to say in that moment. Both, but It both acknowledges the wrong that he did, but also, and maybe this is, this is the kind of, you know, hmm, analytical bordering sociopath way of Alexander Hamilton, but how could he have allowed himself to be outmaneuvered by this? Right. I think is also the, the kind of underlying current of that scene. It's not, it's not just guilt about cheating on Eliza, who he does love. It's also, how did I let this person beat me like this? That really drives him nuts. Another part that I love is that later on, Aaron Burr elects to run for Congress. He has decided in a uh, long series of songs about his, you know, his inclination to wait for things, to be calm, to not make rash decisions or announce his opinion, and how he's falling behind Hamilton because Hamilton's so brash. Burr says, all right, Mm -hmm. I need to try something different. So he runs for Congress, and he has a great campaign song. And it it is one of those moments where the playwright (laughs) changes an old tune into something new. So in the first Mm -hmm. act, Burr's advice is, talk less, smile more, don't let him know what you're against or what you're for. It's an advice to stay quiet, to be calm, to not make waves. And he turns it into a campaign song. And Aaron Burr is big smiling, shaking hands, talk less, smile more, don't let him know what you're against. And it turns into this raucous, joyous sort of almost a dance of words about how now he's suddenly in the public eye, but he's still not going to have opinions. He's going to dance around questions of specifics So that he can appeal to the broadest popular uh, group. Mm -hmm. And another reprise of music, the Ten Duel Commandments comes back. Yes, the duels. Oh my gosh. We got so far without talking about the duels. We got to talk about the duels for a second. So in the first first act, the the big duel that happens, duels is a very prominent theme in Alexander Hamilton's life, both in actual history and in the play. There are three duels played out in the course of the script. Their their first one is uh, between... Lawrence and General Lee in the first act where the duels are introduced. Then mm-hmm. Philip duels someone late in the second act and then Hamilton and Byrd duel to close the The final play. duel. And they're all set within this, the 10 duel commandments and it goes one through 10 telling you how to have a duel basically. Well, yeah, and the, that's that's the first duel between Lawrence and General Lee in the first act is a description of the process of having a duel. And then mm-hmm. from then on, Lin-Manuel changes the count, not the actual yep. numbers, but the description of each number to to play on what we already know about how duels work and then how things have changed or the context has changed for each subsequent duel. Yep. And so then the, the duel between uh, Philip and Eaker, um, who is who is someone who is vocally against Hamilton, uh, it ends with, uh, rather than uh, look him in the eye, aim no higher, summon all the courage you require, and then count, it ends with slowly and surely aim your pistol towards the sky. So he's trying to throw it. And you keep getting these, like, you keep developing on the theme and expanding your mind more and more within this theme, and it keeps getting turned on its head. I wonder, I have a question for you about this, Jackson. It's something I've always wondered about, and it's never said... Um, in the text of the play. But I've noticed that 
So Philip in that duel raises his pistol to the sky. He's not going to shoot Eker. That's Alexander Hamilton's advice to his son. Philip goes to his dad and says, look, I'm going to have this duel. And a smart father would have said, no, you're not. But <laughs> Hamilton says, sure, go duel. But right. don't shoot it. Just aim your pistol at the sky. That's an honorable thing to do. Apparently, historically, that was something people really did do, sort of satisfy the need to shoot something, I guess, but also say, I don't want to kill you. Um, yeah. And so Philip does that. He raises his pistol at the sky, and as Philip is dying, he he lets known that he had his pistol to the sky before he got to ten. In the mm-hmm. count of the duel, Philip says, uh, you know, I slowly and surely aim your pistol at the sky. And then the, the chorus counts, as they always do. And they go, yep. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then the guns shoot at seven. <laughs> so yeah. here's what I wonder. Is the playwright trying to tell people who are, you know, aware enough to catch this, that Philip mm. got shot because he raised his gun early? And so Eker fired, wondering oh. what was happening. Because the count yeah. didn't get to ten. And Philip tells us he definitely did raise his gun early. Right, before we so even does, got to 10. Yeah, I so was does Eker say, he's raising his gun, I gotta shoot, he's shooting her, and then shoots him. Is yeah, that what happens? That, I've always wondered that. That's that's totally true. And that's like some of the chaos of this play. Like so many people's fates are wrapped up in these moments of one-on-one gunfire. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and you know stuff like that can, I, that that's I think that's a perfectly decent way to interpret that because both other times they get to 10 right um in in the play so I think uh, yeah I, I think I would follow that line of reasoning pretty pretty and easily And so the yeah. heart if that if I'm right about that the heartbreak is that that means that Philip died because of the advice Alexander gave him because <laughs> yeah. Alexander says raise your pistol to the sky and Philip yep. did it but he did it too early and so mm-hmm. Eker, in sort of a panic at seeing his gun move before it was 10, just shoots wildly and right. manages to catch him. Yeah. I suppose I, I had always kind of interpreted that scene as Eker is just a jerk. But, um, well, that, and Eker I think that is, that is a jerk. <laughs> he is clearly a jerk. But, like, I think that that is an even more heart wrenching thing for, Alec, uh, for, for Alexander to. To realize that, you know, the the because he wasn't there with his son, maybe even to further instruct him at the moment, right? Um, the, the his ultimate death comes and, about. And would that Philip be is, dead if he just dueled normally? Maybe he would have right. shot Eker. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe just dueling regularly was the way to go. And that scene where he's dying, amongst amongst the moments in this play where I wind up crying. Is so the son dies, but then also the song after, which I don't know if it's titled Forgiveness, but yeah, it's titled It's Quiet Uptown because the in the wake of their son's death, and at this moment in the play, Alexander is on the outs from his wife because the affair has been revealed, and so he's right. like sleeping in his office, he, he doesn't have anything really to do with his family, and then mm-hmm. their son dies, and so they move uptown to sort of get away from it all. And mm-hmm. in, in the midst of this tragedy, the playwright does just a really tender job in narrating how this tragedy brings the two of them, Eliza and Alexander, back together. Yeah. The line that always hits me in there is, forgiveness, can you imagine? Like, those two together. It's not just that she forgave him, but it's that she forgave him in such extreme uh, circumstances that he, because we haven't talked about this at all, he again decides to control his fate in a beautiful song in the eye, in the eye of a hurricane. There is quiet for a moment. Um, he decides that he will tell the world that he has had an affair rather than let Jefferson do it. So his his political enemies have discovered the affair. 
They yeah. are accusing him of stealing money because he's been paying this money weirdly to this guy who nobody knows. And yep. they say, well, you've been extorting money. We're going to out you. We're going to get you fired. We may have get you arrested. And Alexander says, no, 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 no. I'm not extorting money. I had an affair. I had to pay this guy. Please don't tell anyone. Right. And his political enemies say, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Okay. We won't tell <laughs> sure, anyone. We won't. <laughs> and so in the song, The Eye of a Hurricane, Alexander makes the decision to to write his own destiny is a stupid decision, but he decides yeah. <laughs> that he's going to write a public pamphlet describing the affair in his mind so that he can a- avoid the charges of extortion. Yep. Which, and, and, money and then there's another beautiful number from Eliza um, that she's, she's burning the letters that he wrote to her. And it's just another beautiful heart wrenching scene. So you get to Philip dying in the right after that. He's made this huge move that has effectively uh, put all of their the dirty laundry of, of the unknown dirty laundry of their marriage out in the open without talking to Eliza about it, and 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 so they're in this place when Philip dies, and somehow can you imagine a situation where you would forgive someone for that? It's in this situation where their son has died, and that that that's just a beautiful beautiful scene for me anyway as I listen to it. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a song about forgiveness and how grief brings people together. And that's, I mean, that's just such wonderful themes. There, there's more that happens towards the end of the play, but I want to kind of talk about some of the features of writing in the script. One of the things that musicals sometimes struggle with is making the music part of the story rather than hmm. just a feature of emotional outburst in regards to the plot. So, you know, for people who study musicals and write musicals, a feature of a good musical is that decisions, plot points happen in the songs, that the songs aren't just description of how a character is feeling about the plot that happens in the dialogue, but that the songs are actually actually points at which characters decide something or where news is revealed, where um, revelations, reversals, you know, to quote the old theater theory happens. This musical doesn't really have much, if any, real dialogue. So all of the play happens in the songs. But one of the great features, I think, of the script is that the songs that we all love so much, the songs which are the ones we sing to each other and and play on repeat, are songs in which decisions occur. Things Mm. change in the songs. What are some of those songs where we note decisions being made? I'll I'll start with one, um, Satisfied. Angelica's song at the beginning about how she decides to let Eliza be with Alexander even though she wants to be with him anyway. That's a beautiful, it's a, what a genius song. I could talk about that song for an oh, hour. Oh my goodness, yeah. But mm-hmm. one of the great features of it is that you watch a character struggle and then make a decision. What, what are some other songs, examples of that? Yeah, the one I just, uh, I'll mention it again, Hurricane Into the Reynolds Pamphlet is a big one because uh, it's, it's him wrestling with, it's Hamilton wrestling with, do I let someone else control my destiny? And... Or, or do I potentially wreck my legacy but retain control of it? And we see him wrestle with that thought, ultimately decide to go ahead and do it, and then we see the ramifications of it with you know Jefferson and Madison dancing around him saying, you'll never be president now. Um, so that, that's a huge one. 
Yeah, you think about like the even the original uh, "Stay Alive" and Ten Dual Commandments, the original, the first duel, where Hamilton says, "You know, we need to pay back General Lee for all the mean things he said." And Washington says, "You can't do that. We need our allies." And so Hamilton and so Lawrence decides to duel for Hamilton, and that changes the course of their lives. And then, of course, the you know the big culminating or, or the 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 pre-culmination of the climax of the play is the the letter exchange between Burr and and Hamilton where they basically decide through through a series of letters um delivered delivered in rhythm um to decide to duel each other to the death by the end of the play yeah and you know you could really go through every song and talk about the moments when characters decide to do something that's so so hard to do yeah, and that's the amazing thing about this play is it happens all the time, constantly singing. Yeah, <laughs> you know, whole, it's like Le Mis in that there's virtually no dialogue. There's, there's, there's a little more than Le Mis, but it's all in the song, really. And we've talked briefly about lyrical density. They mentioned that in the script as well. There's so much word, so much exposition in this show. Because it's hip-hop, the, you can get so much words in there, and it's just a constant flood of them through the whole thing. You're just right along for the ride with these huge events that happen throughout every song. Yeah, there, there's so many great lines and exchanges that happen. I mean, you, you really are become aware of how clever the playwright is to write characters who so cleverly are able to clap back at each other, stay in verse, <laughs> rhyme, uh, you know, examine plots, examine themes through a three-hour musical all in song. Yeah, it's incredible. So we got we got a little bit of time left, a very little bit of time. I, I do want to come back to kind of what you were saying about plots, because I think it is a huge decision that you have to make when you're doing this is what is the main through line of the plot? And I think we've already said some pretty good candidates for them. Um, certainly his legacy is one. Certainly his 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 journey through that. Um, but what do you think is kind of the main through line that let's let's dig into that just a little bit harder towards the end here. What is what is the uh, the ride we go on with Hamilton in this play? I think that that the the bulk of the plot, the bulk of the story, is about Hamilton's political career, watching him unfold as one of the founding fathers, and Manuel Miranda layers into that this subplot of how his family life affects changes comes into conflict with that political life if we're talking about theme then i think we get into a little bit different territory but just in terms of plot and the reason why i say that the the stories about eliza and angelica are subplot i think is that so much of the bulk of the play is about his career and, and you know, even we spend a, a chunk of time in the middle of the second act on his personal life from the affair through It's Quiet Uptown. But at the conclusion mm-hmm. of that song, what's the next lyric? It's something like, can we get back to politics, please? Please? Because even the structure <laughs> of the script, the characters, the, the, the lyrics recognize that we've taken a long break from what, <laughs> the, from what has driven most of the play so far. 
That's that's really true. Yeah. Yeah. I think I agree. A lot of it has to do with his rise into political prowess and rise and fall into and out of political prowess. Let's 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 go into the theme then. Let's let's push a little harder into that, because I think we've already said two big ones. And which one you decide is is the most important could have some ramifications. There's uh, history has its eyes on you. And who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Which are, uh, you know, which are sort of connected themes. They're, they're maybe not in opposition to each other because who lives, who dies, who tells your story. You have no control. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story is really a ramification of the fact that history has its eyes on you because historians, culture, future generations are watching what you're doing here. Because mm-hmm. they're watching that, you don't have any control over the story that gets told. You only have control over what you choose to do now. And that is something that we've said Hamilton really butts up against. He really believes that his genius, his cleverness, his prowess, his articulation, that those things give him control over the story that's told about him. And one mm-hmm. of the lessons he has to learn is that he doesn't. And maybe maybe he doesn't learn that lesson. I don't know. Um, yeah, maybe he never does. But then there's also the element that the last number has nothing to do with Hamilton, really. Um, it has to do with his legacy, but it's Eliza carrying on his legacy. Well, it's the about last... how Eliza goes on to tell his story. Right. And and it's not some – it tells, tells all their stories. That's the other thing is, she, is, is through the last number of the song, it talks about how Eliza tells Washington's story, Hamilton's story. I think she even talks about uh, like Lauren's, that she works, works on, on Lauren's story as well and collecting all the writings of this time. And, you know, that's not something necessarily that <laughs> I think Hamilton was ever planning for. It's not like he wrote all this and thinking that she was going to be there to pick it up. I think he thought he was going to come back from the duel I, I, when he left. I think so too. And it's, you know, he did not have much control over the fact that Eliza went on to tell his story. It would not have happened probably if Philip hadn't have died, which led yeah. them to forgive, you know, which led Eliza to forgive him and their relationship to be restored. You watch as things that almost can't be predicted or accounted yeah. for affect so much about the characters' lives. So there's that channel. Then there's also the channel of people making bad decisions or good decisions. <laughs> like the things that Hamilton decides to do with his life directly impact the story that gets told about him in ways that he might not predict. I wonder I wonder how much bearing that would have. I, I, I think I think you're ultimately right. I don't think I think that's may, there may be much more closer than I thought of originally because I think ultimately those two are st- structured both because they they come from the same character who says them. George Washington says them both, but then ultimately they work together so intricately that you can't you can't focus on one without the other. I think that's true. Right. There's there's uh, the, the idea that people are watching the choices you make and that they're going to tell that story over and over again outside of your control. You can't control what they say about you. They're so inextricably tied together, and it's the thing that Hamilton doesn't understand. Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the many. But he, he, from the beginning of the play, he lives in a world in which he can write his own legacy. And he learns that the things that Eliza goes on to tell and that are so emotionally impactful in that last song are some of the things that Hamilton would have never considered part of his legacy. Like the fact that yeah. he's an orphan. Eliza goes on in real right. history to run an orphanage. And that's a beautiful part of the legacy of this script is that Eliza goes on to care for orphans the way that Hamilton was never really cared for. And Hamilton wouldn't, wouldn't have written that as part of his legacy, but it goes on to be an important one. 
I want to talk to briefly here, Jackson, about some of the decisions of historical accuracy. There are moments where some of the historical inaccuracies, I think, seem odd. Um, we know that in a script like this, every every scene can't have happened in history. And I'm by no means a purist in those things. However, there are, mm-hmm. there are some things that I know weren't historically true, and I'm interested in why he bothered to include them. For example, in the song Satisfied, Angelica is explaining why she has decided to let Eliza be with Alexander. And one of the things she says is, my father has no son, so I'm the one who has to social climb, blah, blah, blah. That's not true. <laughs> That really? line is not true. <laughs> uh, her father had a lot of sons, in fact. Huh. So that's a lie. I mean, the, the player I put in there, one example of a historical inaccuracy, which doesn't seem that important. I mean, I, hmm. I suppose if I were the playwright, I would argue that, well, we needed Angelica to have a justification for why she needed to socially climb instead of marrying this penniless immigrant. So it needs to be that she's the one on whom the family legacy bears. But that's such a small motivation in the course of the play. It doesn't really drive Angelica through the rest of the script. And you could easily write a different semblance of the same thing. She's the oldest sure. daughter, maybe. I mean, mm-hmm. you can make, you know, you can create some other intrinsic one that doesn't go so blatantly against the historical fact. It, it almost, you know, smells of trying to wash over something, right? Because, because the, the sisters in this play wind, wind up uh, as very, very strong female characters in it. They're, they're very intellectual. They're able to, you know, Angelica is described as, and, 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 and historically, Angelica was able to verbally spar with Alexander Hamilton. And Something, Jefferson. They only, and Jefferson. They only barely scratched the surface, but what's actually true is that Angelica and Jefferson interacted, some people would say romantically, that's never proven, but they had some interactions while Jefferson was in France. Oh, really? That, that yeah. I didn't know. But yeah, so you have you, you have these these very strong uh, female characters, and I wonder if the language of my I think I think it it I get to a place faster, or I understand the narrative better if she's the oldest daughter of of only three children, rather than um, my you know <laughs> I'm I'm the oldest daughter of just the daughters, and that's confusing to try to write a song about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, I, I think I agree. But, you know, what if you just don't include that fact at all? Just don't talk about it. You don't have right. to bring up that there are sons. But why lie about it? You know, why why yeah. decide to make – and, and why decide to make a motivation of hers something right, that's historically motivation. untrue? Yeah. To see – yeah, it, that seems very odd to me. Mm-hmm. There is a little bit of kind of turning turning eyes from things, and I wonder what the decision making process was. They do they give Jefferson a surprising amount of blank slate for some of his views. <laughs> um, he has taken a task on some of his views on slavery in one of the cabinet meetings, but in general, it's not really brought up. And he was, you know, a, a bit of a bigger player on that than they give him uh, time for. And I, I do wonder, you know, what what is the? It would be it would be interesting to hear what the criterion was for. Uh, Lin Manuel Miranda, as he was writing this, what what he decided to take creative liberties with. What do you think uh, a playwright's 
moral obligation is to historical truth because lots of liberties are taken with the with the historical truth of this to make a good story and a good mm. musical and i am I'm, I'm fully appreciative of that i don't think every part of this has to be true a lot of the scenes didn't even happen but right. they're imaginings of what if this happened and then there mm-hmm. are moments where he changes the history and so what 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 is a what's an obli- what are the obligations of somebody who writes something from history yeah I think I think you have to walk along an interesting line between whether you're telling a, a history or whether you're telling a myth. And I think um, what Hamilton winds up doing is reinventing our American mythos um, rather than telling a verbatim historical text. And 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 really, we a lot of our historical text is just American mythos. <laughs> That's definitely um, <laughs> true. I would guess that a lot of the history we learn as children. Um, is no more true than this musical. <laughs> yeah, yep. So I don't think he's really like doing this undone thing. Really, he's just choosing to focus on different things as a storyteller, as as um, a, a, and storyteller in like the classic sense of the word. Someone who gets to own the myth of the people of the land that they are from and carry it on to the next generation. Every generation reinvents their mythos of their country. I, I love that idea of rewriting the American myth because that has so much relation with the concept for the production as well that people of any color of any background can be part of American history because Mm -hmm. you know this story in history is fairly white it's about white people who rebel against other white people and what Hamilton does is first of all the playwright emphasizes places in which there were people of color involved as a way to show that. And then he says, this story is also all of our story. So anyone yeah. can participate in the telling of it. And and draws attention, yeah, and draws attentions to uh, to people like immigrants who get the job done. You know, Hamilton was an immigrant. Lafayette was an immigrant. So yeah, at, while, while telling the story, he, he opens it up to a whole new generation of people to interact with the story that a lot of people have already uh, identified with. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's uh, finish our conversation here on a comedic note, Jackson. Let's talk about good old King George. Oh my um, goodness! He's got three songs. <laughs> I mean, what a hilarious character! Could you describe for us, Jackson, what the imagining of King George is in this script? Oh yeah, King George actually probably gets more credit than the actual King George actually had in history in this play. He is decently able to handle the complex complexities of. <laughs> of, you know, <laughs> empire, but he is also completely blind to why they would ever want to leave him. Um, he's, he's, he's this, this, um, maybe foppish is the right word. This, <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, uh, you know, English, uh, aristocratic individual who is, who is, who believes that America is, is uh, it's like a breakup like, song, right? The first yeah, it's song, like his, which America's is about his lover or something. Yeah, it's about the colonies deciding to rebel. It's sort of King George's reaction. It's written as if it's a breakup song, and right. America has broken up with him, and he's this love-struck, heartbroken, uh, you know, <laughs> yep. ex who is singing yep. about why you should come back. Also, like oddly, father too. It's yeah. a little messed up. <laughs> it's a weird balance. <laughs> <laughs> but he comes up three times in the in the script. There's, you know, every so often, King George over in England hears about what's going on in America, and uh, and has something whiny and uh, you know uh, 
sad but also hilarious. He's mm-hmm. he's a comedian. I mean, he's a comedy character through and through. His songs Definitely. are designed to give a funny outtake on what England might have thought of some of the crazy things that were going on in America at the time. Mm-hmm. There is one poignant line kind of snuck in there between guffawing um, uh, about, he says, oceans rise, empires fall. It's much harder when it's all your call. So, you know, what are you going to do? And I think that is that we see that come into play. Even then, uh, Washington is forced with the option of do I follow through with a treaty that is no longer a treaty with France that is no longer in play? Because the king died, do I send over troops to try to quell this revolution or or bolster this revolution in France or not? And it's a and it's his call. Like he has the he has the ability to affect that revolution. And yeah, um, the the play actually sneaks in a few of those great lines, sort of in each of the versions of the song. The first song, which is just a, a breakup song about why America should come back instead of fighting this war. There's there's some what what are funny lines about why King George, you know, uh, I. In order to show you that I love you, I'm going to kill all your friends and family. I'm going to send a fully armed battalion to show you how much I love you. <laughs> and that, you that's hilarious, but it's yeah. also an interesting way to talk about this weird dichotomy where England wants loyal American colonists' subjects that are loyal to the crown and are also killing them indiscriminately for right. wanting <laughs> to separate. So he talks about that balance. Then in the song where uh, the king learns that John Adams is going to be the new president, he talks about how, you know, in comparison to George Washington, everybody looks small. Yeah. And that is a great way to comment on this question in American history of what happens after Washington. Mm-hmm. How can anybody compare to George Washington in the leadership of the country? So it, yeah. there's some great subtextual uh, ways to talk about things in a, in a comedic song. Well, there's there's so many more themes that we could get into in this play. There's just we we've talked about how we could do a whole podcast on just the song Satisfied and it's so true. It's a brilliant song. There's it's so many more things. It's my favorite song in the script. I mean, yeah. out and out it's my favorite. Do you have a favorite? Is that it or do you have a different one? Oh boy. Um that one is is very high on my list. Um I think the the really good one and it's and it's a lot of people's favorites but it's uh, guns and ships mm, i think yeah. is the one that like as i'm listening to it i'll just it there's a there's a feeling that you get with it uh, adjacent to the actual story being told in it because of the rhythm of how it's written and I, a I lot really of like people also lot. love aaron burr's soliloquy in the second act wait for it yes um, that's a that's one that people really are are in love with, but satisfied for me just hits me in all the right places. It's genius writing, mm-hmm. it's clever storytelling. I love yep. the moment where she lays out the three reasons why she did what she did, but she's yeah. also regretful of it. I think it's just brilliant. And all in rewind too. Yeah. Like we've seen, oh, we've gosh. seen all of these scenes already, but we get to hear the subtext of them, and it's yeah, I agree, it's brilliant. So. If there are other scenes that you think are brilliant, having read the play, having listened to the play, having interacted with it, we definitely want to hear from you about them. We'd love to keep this conversation going, but we know that many of you have other things to do. So (laughs) hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Podcast. If you want to talk to us about that, you can also send us an email at noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to keep having this conversation with all of you as well. And remember, we have three more musicals coming your way across the 
this next yeah. month. We are going to be talking about Fiddler on the Roof next week. Following that, we're going to be talking about the band's visit, and then we will finish it out at the end of the month with Next to Normal. So those three are still coming your way. You can find this episode, which I assume you've already found if you're listening to, but you can also find all the rest of our episodes on Podbean, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and on Google Play. So those are the places where our episodes live. Please leave us a review if you find the time on Facebook or on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us, as well as just share the episode. Tell your friends about it. We say this a lot, but if you're listening, you probably like scripts and plays in some way, which means you probably know people that do too. So share the podcast, tell people about it so this conversation can continue to grow. We love scripts. Uh, We know that lots of people do, so we're hoping we can talk to them as well. So until next week, when we come back at you with a fiddler on the roof, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. This is No Script. See ya. See ya.